Welcome to our podcast here at Hope United Church. To access the live stream of our services, along with other resources and information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk. We're in the Upper Room Discourse, coming to the end of this uh, this part of this final night of Jesus' life with his disciples and he is uh, what a chapter it's been where Jesus first confronts Judas that seems like ever ago doesn't it uh, ever ago that's bad grammar but you know what I mean uh, where Jesus confronts Judas who was the betrayer who had heard every sermon Jesus preached isn't that amazing he'd heard every sermon that John and Peter preached yet he betrayed him and after he confronts Judas, as we know, he then challenges the disciples who, whose faith is really waning, who don't understand, who are frightened, who are perplexed, who have got heavy hearts, their hearts are troubled. Uh, before he comforts them with this promise, wonderful promise of the coming Holy Spirit. And as we bring it to a conclusion today, hopefully uh, we'll conclude this little section in the promise of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Let's look at the rest of the text from verse 25. I'll read 25 to 31, but we'll bring it to conclusion. Can I promise I'll get through it though? Uh, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you for the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives uh, do I give you. And those are the main verses and texts that we'll concentrate on today, but I'll just read the rest. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father for my Father is greater than I. And I I now have, I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the father and the father gave me commandment to so I do arise so so I do sorry arise and let's go from here and that's his final parting words as he rises and stands up in the upper room about to walk out down the stairs, he's in the upper room, I don't suppose the abseil done, uh, as they walk down the stairs and go and make their way towards uh, Jerusalem and Gethsemane prior to that where he's arrested. Uh, verse 25 and 26, these things I have spoken to you, well being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. These two verses really tie in with all the other verses of the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. These things I've told you already and shown you already, but you will not only remember them, but it will all make sense to you when the Holy Spirit comes to you. The disciples are still deeply confused. It doesn't really make sense. And Jesus is saying the, the coming of the Holy Spirit is what makes sense to the word of God, it's what makes sense to our Christianity, it's what makes sense to everything Jesus says. If we had to ask ourselves, no, before we were saved, uh, 
We would, un we would know Jesus. We would say we believe in Jesus. We, we thought we would know Jesus. But the word does not make sense. In fact, his teachings don't really make sense because that cannot make sense until you're saved and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then it starts to make sense and you bring everything into understanding. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you get, you get walloped with it and you understand everything overnight. But everything you start to learn starts to make sense to you and things become illuminated to your life. The, the true purpose of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is, is to bring all of Christ's teachings, all of his ways, all of his purposes into an understanding and into a remembrance and, and bring it to a reality. Otherwise, the Bible is a story. It's nothing. It's, it's, like, it's another... Uh, fairy tale if you like it's a fictional story without the holy spirit it truly is people are oh you say that you know i mean people argue who are no believers about jesus you, you can understand there's nothing illuminated in their life that would know that that was true that's why it's no worth debating with an atheist too long no casting your peril before swine here people de debating with people that don't believe forever Oh, wasting their time and talking about stuff when things are not illuminated to them. That doesn't mean you say that you won't speak to them or debate with them, but you have to limit what you would expect them to understand. The modern church, mostly as we know, the pragmatic church, which is everywhere today, it teaches psychology, it teaches a self-help. Because, and this is a bold statement here, I'm no tar brushing, but it's because most of whom teach in these churches are... You have to say whether they're saved or not. It's suspect whether they're even saved. And therefore, they cannot teach the word accurately because they're not saved. The Holy Spirit, teacher John Owen says this, and this is quite wordy. Everything John Owen says is wordy. Even his quotes are wordy. Even, even the one words he says is wordy. He's very wordy, but phenomenal if, in, in understanding of the Holy Spirit, and of, I believe, see, the, the, more you, the more you study him, the easier his teaching gets, it's like everything else, you start to understand his thinking. Uh, this is what John Owen says, the revelation of the Spirit, that is the gifts whereby in whose exercise he manifests and reveals his own presence. Listen, just, just before I go any further, I'm not going to just say this statement and then just move on because you'll be like, ah, what is he saying? Many of may think that. So let me start again, the revelation of the Spirit, that is the gifts whereby and whose exercise he manifests and reveals his own presence, power and effectual operation. And the Spirit of God has no other aim in granting his enlightened gifts where he manifests his care of the church and declares the things of the gospel unto man. But that, that used for the prophet advantage but used for the profit, advantage and edification of others. They are not bestowed on men to make their secular gain or advantage by them in riches, honour or reputation, but for them that receive it for the edification of the church and the furtherance of the faith and profession in others. Quite wordy, eh? What he's saying, okay, a lengthy quote, eh? Uh, but simply, I'll break down really what Owen's saying because it's, it's really astounding, uh, would be to say the Holy Spirit is for all believers, for the good of the purpose of one, for edifying the church, 
That word again, remember I mentioned it on Thursday, okadome, for the building up, for the promoting, for a help grow. So the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to help grow, promote, build up the church. That's really what Owen's saying to make it noticed, to become the number one go-to place where people should go to find Christ. Uh, you walk into a church and it should, of course, Jesus is you no know, in us and, and therefore, this is why you hear people say, and I know, especially at the moment, the church is, the church is not a building. That's, that's what people keep banging on about. Whose churches are closed. You know, it's not a building, it's a gathering of people. But it's, but it's what happens in amongst that church and that tabernacle, that gathering of people that's so important for edifying the church where people will find Christ and see his fullness. Just simply ask yourself a question. Just that this becomes really simple. See if somebody does not know Jesus and is kind of searching for Jesus, where do you think they'll go? Ikea? Really? Oh, I'm going to pop down to the Ikea. Well, know that, know that they'll be able to because there's no open, right? But uh, you can order online and click and collect and they're charging you extra for it. Really? I'm not even getting a meatball. <laughs> know that you'd want one. I took Samuel to the Ikea a few years ago. He got a hot dog and, a, and meatballs and he projectile vomited over the furniture in Ikea. I just flung a rug at it and moved on. No, I'm only kidding, I'm only kidding. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Where are we going to find Jesus? Where do you go? Well, I'm going to go into Zoom, see if I can see Jesus. Automatically, even as a non-believer, you're thinking church. See, before I get saved, I don't know about you, I used to drive by churches and I would be embarrassed or nervous. I would be convicted by the building. Call me a weirdo, but I would. I'd drive by, the wee, guy that let, the wee guy that preached the gospel mostly to me was a young man, uh, he, he actually died, he actually committed suicide last year, right at the start of lockdown. I was devastated. And he was, he was a phenomenal evangelist, full on. And he went to a church in Bell Sill and see every time, because he used to, he would, he would he'd be ministering to me maybe for a couple of years while I was really in the full blown alcoholism and all sorts. And I knew he went to that church. See, every time I used to drive by it or go by it, I'd be like, Phew. embarrassed and ashamed. You don't do that on a Zoom, do you? This is the power of the, 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 the church and meeting together. Many of have had that experience. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to, first thing is, John Owen says, build the church, and then it's for edifying and building people. Building each other up. And then thirdly, it gives us the power. The Holy Spirit is to give us the power and the knowledge to declare the full understanding of the gospel. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, that we can declare the gospel. Isn't it amazing that somebody could share the gospel in a shallow way without understanding any of it and it would maybe have no effect on somebody and yet somebody could share the exact same thing fully the Holy Spirit and it would convict you that is the power that is the mystery and the power of the Holy Spirit but fourthly and excuse me 
Won't tell us of what it's not. It's not for self-promotion. Selfish gain. It's not for our fame or our fortune. It's not to give us worldly blessing or make us famous or well-known. So basically, it's not to be used the way Kenneth Copeland uses it. Okay? It's not that. It's not like the charismatic heresy and heretical teachers. It's not to be used in that way for their gain, for their wealth, for their fame. Nor is it for to have your best life now or to find a girlfriend. Pray to the Holy Spirit that you get married. I've heard some crazy stuff. A car, a house, a TV. Nor is it to show how anointed you are by giving us your prophecy about seeing a tapestry or a rainbow or one of the classics is champagne bottle. That's one of them. I've heard, see, when, see when you've heard one of the kind of illustrative prophecies more than once, do you know it's copied? <laughs> I see a champagne bottle. I've heard that three times. So what happens is, as if, as, if, as if the Holy Spirit would give you an illustration of alcohol. <laughs> as if it would give you an illustration of something that, something that takes you out the mind of Christ. I see a champagne bottle opening and it goes everywhere and that's what the Holy Spirit's going to do in the church. It's all that stuff. And it's to make people feel anointed and you have these Holy Spirit. I've been to, many years I've been to them, you go to these Holy Spirit encounters in church. I've been to loads and everybody and it's like, Open mic night. You know, I've been to one of the open mic Holy Spirit nights. Everybody wants to come up. And what happens is all the needy folk are dying to get to the platform because they think this is what's going to get me popular and make me feel special. I need to have a word. And then there's usually a queue. I've seen it. I've seen it in church in Glasgow. Big queue right up the aisle. Big queue up the aisle. We one after the other coming up to, sh to share what the Lord's told them. And after you go to them a few times, you know who's going to be in the queue. You know who's going to be in the queue. The needy guy is always going to be in the queue because he's desperate to feel special and popular. It's a million miles away from what the Holy Spirit's purpose is. A million miles away. Nonsense prophecies. The whole foundation of the church in the first century was built on edifying the church, edifying the people and being about sharing the good news. That's the purpose and that's what Owen is saying. The Holy Spirit enlightens us about how all Christ is, all he done, and all we should do as a result that will glorify him and serve him. The wonderful thing about this promise to the disciples is soon they won't need to try and figure it all out. That's the Holy Spirit. Don't you think that's a wonderful thing? I'm not going to have to figure this out. The Holy Spirit in me is figuring it out and leading me to all truth. The Spirit will guide them to all understanding and truth, Jesus is saying. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us teachable. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us First, Matthew 5, 6, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is all about, people say the Beatitudes is about, 
the millennium kingdom and all sorts of stuff. It's not. It's the, 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 the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is really about, it's about salvation. It's the process of salvation and his sanctification. Blessed are, blessed are the meat for they shall inherit the earth. But, and it goes on and on and on. And then it says, Matthew 5, 6, where, it, where Jesus is at this part. And it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Before you were saved, you did not hunger and thirst for righteousness. You hungered and thirsted for anything else but righteousness. But once we're saved, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It, it gives us this hunger. We start to desire and we have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what does it say? For they shall be filled. When we're saved after our repentance, we are led to a place by the Holy Spirit of hunger. This is why it's wonderful when you see young Christians and young believers being saved and then they're getting their Bible and they're into their study and, and they're, what are they doing? They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I never read a book, I think I read a couple of books, a couple of novels. Uh, before I was saved, I was never, I was not a reader. No, unless it was studying form in the horses or something like that, but that, does that count? Yeah. But I, I wasn't a reader, I was not a studier in any way. And then I get saved and then you start hungering, thirsting for knowledge and understanding and can't get enough of it. And at times you, you get lazy with that and I'll get into that. But when you are when you are in the presence, when you are full of the Holy Spirit, you're going to just constantly be like a sponge, constantly feeding and desiring the Word. And you just, and then as soon as you get into it, like, I can't, for hours pass. If I'm studying for a message, I'll have like something like 20 books, maybe 20 books, different things looking. Before you know it, you look at your clock and you're like, that's, that's five hours went, gone. Better than any experience that you could ever have in life. Because as you know, you look at the word, you don't get more answers, you get more questions. What, what, does, oh, what does that mean? More. Hunger and thirsting for God and his ways and his word is proof firstly therefore of salvation. But it's also proof of the Holy Spirit working in us. We never hungered and thirsted on our own. It's the Holy Spirit of God in us that makes us hunger. Last week we said, stir up the gift of God. Anna's apparel, torn charisma, torn theos. Stir up the gift of God that is in you. And when we stir up that faith, what does it do? It leads us to scripture. When you're stirred up in faith, and a, you, you grow in a desire to learn. Now, if you're if like me, when you were brought in the charismatic church, when you were when you were pumped, it didn't make you go to the word. It, it made you want to do crazy things because that's what you were in that environment. It made you want to. It made you want to create your own word because you've got a misinterpretation, a, a misunderstanding of the scripture, and that when. I, when we had a Holy Spirit encounter nights any time I was in church, we didn't get any deep Bible study. Never. 
I've never been in a charismatic church where when, when the Holy Spirit, oh, I feel the power, the, the Holy Spirit, the fire of God's on us. I've never seen anybody sitting down and getting tore into the Word. I've seen them, I've seen them getting tore into each other. We've been flinging them about and all sorts of stuff. But when we stir up that, we, 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 we lean we, we, we lean and we have a deep desire to understand the word in Christ more. When we don't understand the whole... The other stuff's emotionalism. It's just all... It's chasing emotion. When we don't understand the Holy Spirit, as own says, we use it for our selfish gain. It leads us to name and claim. See, because you're not using it to glorify him. You're starting to get something out of yourself. You start to name and claim, pray all sorts of gibberish, which looks nothing like Christ. The more alive the Holy Spirit, the more we stir up the Holy Spirit in us. It shouldn't lead us to look like nothing like Christ. It should lead us to look like everything like Christ. I mean, that's not even rocket science, isn't it? No. I could have got taught that years ago and that would have made perfect sense to me. But we were trying to come through in tongues. We're too busy trying to come through and tongues and too busy trying to understand prophecy. There's a, the Glasgow Prophetic Society where they train you how to prophesy. Why train people how you understand the word? Training you how to prophesy. That is a red rag to a bull to needy people to be special. And this is what, that's what John Owen's saying. Is this, it's not for your own selfish gain. It's not like Simon the Sorcerer in the book of Acts, remember? I'm wanting this Holy Spirit because uh, no, people followed Simon the Sorcerer for years. He was a known magician. He was a known, he was known to perform magic tricks and people loved him, they followed him. But then the Holy Spirit comes and these people receive Christ and, and Simon's like, I'm missing out here. I'm missing out. I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to lose. My job's going to be obsolete. I, I want to get in the act here with this. Remember? Do you know what they do? I love it. They call for John and they, they call for John and Peter. Come and deal with this guy. The big guns come in. No longer messing with him. Deal, dealing with him. Uh, this is this guy wasn't saved. There was nothing about that. He wanted the gifts. But he didn't want to be like Christ. It was for his own selfish gain. I've been in loads of their meetings that looked, it looked almost like everything but like Christ. It's looked like, in fact, it's looked like everything. But it's never looked like Christ. It's chaotic. It's charismatic chaos. Full of self-indulgence. That's not the Holy Spirit, that's flesh. Manipulative emotion. At best and at worst, demonic. And the Holy Spirit is there to make us hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Hence why it will help us remember Christ, as he says. I'll bring all things I've said to you into remembrance. Do you remember I told you about the champagne bottle? No, really. Last week I said this before the disciples were baptised in the Holy Spirit. They had to work hard to remember Jesus and all he'd done in all his ways. He was sort of out of sight, out of mind. 
When we are saved and receive the Holy Spirit, we have to work hard to shut them out. It's the opposite. If you're saved by God's grace, you will have to work to drown out Jesus. Shutting Christ out for a true believer is to truly try and forget. For a non-believer, it's to try and remember. <laughs> You'd have to work to forget about Christ. And somebody says, do you think that behaviour's fitting for a Christian? Never mind that. I want to talk about that. <laughs> when you, before you were saved, you needed to make no effort to ignore Christ. No effort. That's a wonderful thing, don't you think? That the Spirit convicts. Jesus says the Spirit will bring all things into remembrance. This is why, this is why the book could be fully written. You know, John here, years later, the on, through the God-breathed word, the Theonomous days, the, the word breathed through John, every word. Remembered everything. Oh, do you remember? He's writing here and he's, he's, he's recalling the whole lot. Why? Because... Jesus' teaching brings everything into remembrance. The Spirit leads us to remembrance of all truth, all the things Christ taught. It leads us not just hearing the truth, but it also leads us to hearing what is not as true, what's not true. Don't you think that's a wonderful thing? That you can actually not just hear truth, but you can discern lies as well? John MacArthur says this. He, he says it in a very American kind of California accent, discernment. Right? But discernment is discernment is lacking greatly, don't you think? Discernment, no. But no. you can just differentiate right away between truth and lies, you know. See, discernment, the Holy Spirit giving you discernment is the Holy Spirit's way of protecting you from false teaching. <laughs> because you can spot it for 50 yards in the dark, what's true and what's not. Yeah? It's part of the purpose of the Holy Spirit as well. You discern. You're able to divide what's truth from lies. John Calvin was a real scholar and he studied around the clock. I'm, I'm studying all about Calvin and now he's just phenomenal. And the, the amazing thing is there's much writing about John Calvin and people have wrote much about which I love that these, this stuff's documented. There, no, there are other people from history and there's not as much said about them. Whereas John Calvin, many have wrote about him. Even people who walked alongside him, Theodore Bezzi, he, he, he walked with, with, with Calvin. So he, he, he writes fully, like a full biography about him, like blow for blow. It's Amazing, uh, and you can get that in Calvin's tracts and letters. But but Calvin writes about himself as well and his journey. But Calvin, before well, we know, Calvin was a priest. He was a monk, born in northern France. We're not going to get into it, but but anyway, Calvin was an avid scholar. You know, he, he, he studied theology. He studied modern arts. He was he was a phenomenal scholar. But then he left that, his father and different things happened. And then he studied law and he became phenomenal at that as well. He was a phenomenal lawyer. 
In fact, he was such a good thinker, amazing thinker as a lawyer, that often, while he was still training to be a lawyer, that the lawyers themselves would use him to teach them. It's the kind of level of intellect the man had. He was a genius as a thinker. And he would be so steeped, though, in, in popery, and I don't mean the smell, but popery, Catholicism. He was so steeped in studying the sacraments and the traditions, and, and he was one of the great scholars of that. And he would study it, but here's what happened. The Reformation came in 1517, as we know, in Germany. Luther uh, nailed his thesis. Then that started to spread. Uh, him and uh, a man called Philip Melanchthon, who was another scholar with him, that starts to spread in the Reformation, sola scriptura, the word being extracted correctly. No, then get, obviously it was wrote in English, wrote in each native language. And Luther in amongst us was starting to get captured by the Reformation, the spirit, if you like, of the Reformation. And as he got captured by the spirit of Reformation, he, he, he got saved. Right up until that point, he studied all this stuff. He's been steeped in Catholicism and, and the popery and all the stuff that went with it. But yet he wasn't saved. And, and Luther in his own words says this, which I, I love. Uh, whatever. <laughs> he says this. I've got a copy of uh, a, a gift that go, the, 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 the works, the, the full commentary set, the Psalms, the, the Calvin's commentaries, they're, they're for 1840s. Uh, the books, of the, 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 some of them are a bit worse for wear, but uh, the first one's a bit worse for wear, but they're, they're pretty old. But in the start of the Psalms, uh, he shares his experience of conversion right at the start of the Psalms. This is what it says. This is in the, 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 the preface the, before it goes into the main bit. He says this, Since I was obstinately devoted to the superstition of popery, too easily extracted from so profound an abyss of more, God by a sudden conversion subdued and brought my mind into a teachable frame. What a wonderful quote. So what happened is, and this is so encouraging for us all, Calvin, in fact, B.B. Warfield says in his biography about Calvin, he says he was a born exegete. And, and people say that Calvin was the father or the founder and the real scholar of exegete. Exegete is, is uh, eisegesis, is that you look at the scripture and then you adapt it to suit what you're feeling. Exegeting the scripture is to you look at the scriptures and you share exactly what God was meaning. Calvin is the greatest exegete. He was the first real exegete. But what, you, what I think is amazing and exciting is that Calvin's... Uh, Pre-conversion, he still had all those talents and gifts and I think this can be really encouraging how God used your, your, your gifts, your talents. Calvin was already an amazing studier, he was an amazing thinker, he, he was an amazing uh, apologist, he could argue because he was a phenomenal lawyer, uh, he could study scripture. Calvin would go, this is how Calvin operated in his life every day. He'd go up in the, he would, he would go to his universities, different scholars, different things. He was in Paris training. So he would go there and study and sit under study. After the study, he would go home and then he would study what he studied on that day into the wee hours of the morning. He only had about three, four hours sleep a night. 
Then he would go up in the morning early, rise early before prayer time and before his classes, and then study what he'd studied the night before so it would be embedded in his mind. We could all learn from that because what we do is, is we read stuff and we don't go back and go, what was that I was talking about? And, then, and he made sure that whatever he studied the day before was embedded in his mind the next morning, then he would do it and then it would be eat, sleep and repeat. It's how the guy lived. So by the time he got saved, these gifts, he was a born exegete, but it took the salvation for them to be fulfilled. By the time he got to that stage, he, he could understand the word and therefore becomes outside the Apostle Paul, the greatest scholar in, that I've ever witnessed. And it's a great opportunity, no opportunity, it's, it can be great encouraging for us believers because so, the gifts and talents that God's gave us, he starts to nurture them. You know, like Fraser and different people who are great musicians, but, but Fraser was a great, good, great musician playing Freddie Mercury songs. It takes God to change them and then use that gift. I said something on Thursday that every church will have the exact same sound. That's not true. I need to kind of reiterate that. They'll have the, the right sound. It'll be biblically right. But they'll have their own unique sound based on the gifts that's in people that God will use uniquely for that body. No, you'll have different cultures in mind and how they play their music now. They've trained their people. But then it takes the Holy Spirit to guide us. That's why you can have these worship experiences and you just think, this is like a rock show. Because it's about them. And Calvin had knowledge. Avid studier. An amazing exegete. But he was exegeting all the wrong things. And it took the Holy Spirit to kind of turn them the right way up. And then do you know what he did? He just, he just went straight into studying the right thing, hearing the right stuff. Pretty amazing. Philip Melanchthon says that himself, that he says, he say, he says he's just a astounding scholar. <laughs> and he really was. And yet God used them because you had the Reformation that was the start. But, but in a sense, Luther was, they liked to sit back, smoke a cigar, maybe, have a glass of beer, yeah, absolutely, and Calvin was like, what, what are you doing, the, the, the Christianity is not just about theology and learning new stuff, we have to, we have to equip the saints and build the church, he took it to another level, John MacArthur said during his Q&A during the week that Biblical truths, and Calvin, and that bro, you just wanted to learn more about Calvin, didn't you? Biblical truths, re, biblical truths, this is what he says on Wednesday in the Q&A, biblical truths read to analysing reality. So biblical truths don't lead to just as analysing the word and understanding the word, but it also helps us analyse what's real from what's not real. I don't know about you, but I'm utterly astounded by the believers. And worse, the wealth of even biblical scholars who can't seem to spot the lies and the mass manipulation that the world governments are spinning. I'm like, why can you not see that? I'm like, it's all truth that should be leading you. Why do you seem to be ignorant of them truths? 
And truly, you can only come to two conclusions. If you can come up with another one, I'm happy to hear it. But to me, I can only come to two conclusions. One, they're not actually saved. Which I'm not sure that is the case, certainly for them all. Then the only other conclusion is that they are scared. And have started to shut out truth due to fear of persecution. Therefore, they, they choose to what they listen to and what they don't listen to. And they start studying scripture and knowledge to avoid pain and courage. I was talking to my professor the other day and I says, I'm learning hundreds in this course and it's not just what I'm studying. I'm learning about me. I don't know about you when you study something. You don't, you're not just learning what you're reading. You're learning about who you are. You're learning how you're wired, how you tick, how you think, the highs, the lows. You're learning about your flesh. But what ends up happening is when we get so caught up and we become, there are many scholars, they get so caught up in studying that, that they're almost, who they are is out with what they're teaching and who they are is out with what they're learning. And they're only learning knowledge. Luther had learned stuff, and I'm not saying that Luther never done amazing things here. I don't want to kind of lessen Martin Luther. But, but Calvin took what he learned to another level because it was to equip him in every area of his life. And often we can study stuff and read stuff and it becomes head knowledge. But it doesn't give you good running shoes. It doesn't, it doesn't make you a good swordsman. And often what happens is, and I've seen, and in the church, and certainly in the, the, the kind of middle class church that we have in Scotland, and the UK and worldwide, this middle class church is, is that you've got the scholars who have learned knowledge and they're, they're, they're obsessed with knowledge, but, but, it's, but it's knowledge without works, it seems to me. You may think, how can that happen? How can a believer, how can this happen? Well, you can look through scripture, you can flick and dip. What about them who followed Jesus and then things get a bit tough, they stopped, that's a tough teaching. We could argue that they weren't saved. Or what about them who followed Paul and they were with him right up to Rome, but then things get a bit too ropey and then they deserted him. What about Ananias and Sapphira? They wanted all the trimmings. And they wanted all the promises of this. We came together with one heart and one spirit and one mind and we gave all things. We, we saw all things and we came together and built the church together. Ananias and Sapphira loved the idea of that. But their action proved very differently. They were no willing to pay the price. They wanted, the, they wanted, the, 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 they wanted all the promises but no pay the price. And I see that, we see that today in 2021. 20, we want all the trimmings of the promises of the blessings of Christ, but we don't want the pain and to pay the price. What about them in the church in Ephesus? When Jesus through the Holy Spirit visits with John in, in, in Revelations 2, they hated false teaching. They hated them that made a mockery of church but they lost their first love. They hated the right thing, but their passion had gone because they had lost their first love. Their identity was getting lost in what they stood for rather than whom they stood on. 
And often that happens. It's like, this is what we stand for, but where are you standing on? We understand that you've got theology. We understand that you can quote this and you can quote the Puritans. We can understand that you've wrote a thesis on this and that, but what do you stand on when push comes to shove? I fear many believers are doing likewise. The pragmatics are all about inventing, reinventing new works. And the scholars seem to be, many of the scholars are all about knowledge without works. Okay, we need to move it here. This is, that's two verses. Verse 27 is pretty amazing here. I love it. It says, peace I leave with you. This is why scripture is so important to exegete and go through word by word because see these verses here, they only really come to life and are illuminated because of what we've spoke before. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let's, let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Okay, that's really verse. It ties in with what we've said at the start and through the last verses. The Holy Spirit leads to a peace the world and worldly things can't give you. When we have no peace as a believer, we are not remembering Christ. We are forgetting Christ. We are seeking relief. But that relief always leads to a lack of peace. In fact, if, if I had to put it this way, we need Christ to leave us. Or he doesn't leave us. We know he doesn't leave us or forsake us. But we need to shut him out. Out of sight, out of mind. In order for us to look beyond him for relief. You cannot look for relief while seeking Christ at the same time because he will give you peace. You've had to do something. And this is the amazing thing as a believer. It's hard and it's amazing at the same time that we have to work hard to ignore where true peace comes from. We choose to ignore him. We shut him out. We seek man. We seek worldly pleasures. Jesus says, what does, does it say? Peace I give you. What? Not as the world gives you. The world and worldly things don't give us peace. I've had a pound for every time that somebody says to me, you know what, if I could just get some peace. And what they're actually saying is it's relief I'm looking for. If you want real peace, it's a different thing. The world and worldly things can't give you peace. They cannot. In fact, we need to trade the peace of Christ to grab a piece of the world. Which is no peace at all. The world gives us peace by selling us worldly carnal things. Flesh, relief. Remember what Satan tempted Christ with? Remember when he was up the mountain? Worldly things. Status. Flesh. Carnal things. It was custom in Hebrew, probably still is, that in the Jewish face to bid someone farewell, which is to say, Calvin says, prosperity to you. So when somebody would leave in you go to your Jewish household, they'd shake your hand. Shalom. And really, what they're saying is prosperity to you. But it's almost said in such a nonchalant way. It's a bit like us when we say, see you later. It doesn't really mean anything. 
You know, it's just, you, you've just learnt that language. You say to somebody, oh, how's it going? You, somebody goes, oh, wait till I explain to you. You don't really want them to explain, it's just a figure of speech. How's it going? How's it going? Have you got a half an hour? No, no, really, I just want, I was just a figure of speech. How are you doing? It was a bit like that. So Jesus is, and it's amazing. So it means little, and it meant little in the Jewish statement. Shalom, shalom, prosperity to you, whatever. Bye. Good to see you. But Jesus doesn't leave it like that. Jesus says, shalom, peace, I leave you. Shalom, peace, I'm going to give you. See, it's beyond, it's beyond a statement. He's not just going to, he's not going to say prosperity, and we're talking about soul prosperity, no worldly prosperity. Prosperity, I give you. But more than that, prosperity, I leave you. And what, what he's actually saying is, is what, I'm going to, I'm not just, I'm not just desiring that you have peace. I'm going to leave you with the peace that I have. I'm going to leave you with the peace that I have. And that's why we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Because we're left with the peace that he has. That's why we can all be led to the lamp of the slaughter ourselves. And that's why we can deny ourselves and our selfish ambition. Because I'm going to leave you with the peace I have. That's why we can handle things. That's why we can capture our thoughts. That's why we can deny ourselves and our selfish ambition. It's not some shallow statement. There's nothing flipping about it. The peace in the life I have, I will share it and give it to you, is what Jesus, the Holy Spirit, saying. Who I am and how I live and how I operate, I will give you that ability to be able to think and act like that also. Pretty astounding, don't you think? I'm going to give you that same assurance, that same freedom. Basically, what you experience when I'm with you is what you're going to experience when I'm gone. So he's saying, what you're experiencing, knowing the disciples were up close with Jesus and they were experiencing this amazing power of God. They were experiencing what it was like. There's just a couple of fish and load. It's astounding what they were experiencing morning, noon, and night, and this power of Christ. And what Jesus is saying, see what you experienced when you were with me. I'm not talking about miracles here, per se. This is what you're going to experience when, uh, through me and the Holy Spirit as well. You'll have that same peace, that same assurance, that same confidence. The world offers outward prosperity. I offer you inward prosperity. Time's really gone. Fitting, fighting for fleshy things will never ever bring true peace to anyone. But for a believer, it will lead to torment, fits of anger, guilt, embarrassment, isolation. And if you're not embarrassed by your sinful pursuits and worldly attempts at pursuing peace, you really need to look deeply at your salvation and repent. If you're not embarrassed by your behaviour at times, if you're not embarrassed and ashamed of the things that you do to find relief or peace, then we've got trouble. But you will be embarrassed if you're a believer because the Holy Spirit will convict you. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Because left to my own devices and left without the restraining grace of God in my life, what would, all, what would we all be capable of? And that's why we should not take lightly repentance. We should not take lightly saying sorry or asking for forgiveness. Holding on. 
We should be ashamed of our behaviour when it's nothing like Christ. The Holy Spirit leads us to that. The world is nothing to offer a believer. No wonder John MacArthur says, why are we looking to gain the world's affections and why are we looking to them for anything? He added, we can't connect with unbelievers and expect to win a common cause. The world has nothing to offer us that pertains to life and godliness. It certainly can't bring us peace, that's for sure. The more I see believers pursuing flesh, the more shifty they become. Oh, you've been very shifty. What are you so nervous about? You're going to be nervous after this. <laughs> but Anna, you've become shifty because you're ashamed, you're embarrassed. The more I see believers pursue flesh, the more shifty they become. But they then they're trying to hide the lack of real peace. Ah, shalom. I need to bring this in. Jeremiah 6, 13, 14. Hold on to your hearts. This is phenomenal. Jeremiah, the prophet, God speaks through the prophet and he's talking to Jeremiah about false teachers and Baals and gods and they're pursuing the wrong thing. It's really about false teachers, this part. It's very sobering. Jeremiah 6, 13, 14. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the heart of the people. Would you this? Slightly. They've healed the heart of the people slightly. False teachers heal your heart slightly. The world heals your pain slightly. I could use the word nearly, almost. They have also healed the heart of the people slightly. Listen, saying, peace, peace. When there is indeed no peace. Healed the heart slightly. That's what false teachers do. That's what the world offers. Almost healing. Keelan Dillich in their commentary say it this way. The false teachers who ought to lead the people on the true way use deceit and dishonesty. They do not uncover the real injuries so as to heal them thoroughly, but treat them as if they were trivial and no way dangerous infirmities. I give you the modern church. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. You're good. Don't worry about it. You'll get there. Don't worry about it. It's not a problem. Don't worry about it. Healing people slightly rather than telling people the truth. I've had hundreds of conversations where people would say, you know what, I would rather you've been a bit more gracious there. No, could we be a bit more diplomatic there? Say, you know, you're in danger. This will kill you. You know when, you know when Micaiah said to Ahab, Ahab says, you know what, can you just give me slightly? Well, slightly is okay, you're fine. No, you don't mean that, do you? He says, no, 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 you're going to die if you don't get a grip. And they want this. False teachers tickle people's ears and give them a slightly thing. No, I know, you know, it's no challenging in the Holy Spirit. It's, it's no, I'm going to slick. That's why the Holy Spirit, calling the Holy Spirit solely a comforter, the paraclete is not enough. Because he's more than that. Because sometimes the Holy Spirit does not comfort but convict. What a statement by Keelan Dillich, eh? They do not uncover the real injuries so as to heal people thoroughly. And this is what the world offers. See, the world offers you something that will heal you slightly, but 
not thoroughly. As if what you're going through and as if your struggles and battles are somewhat mild sins. Not really that bad. You see, that's what the world does all the time, isn't it? That's what the world teaches all the time. This is a harsh teaching. What are you saying to me? I'd rather you say something that makes me feel better. Can you say it differently? Can it be slightly? No, there's two things. There's a false teacher and none of them it is drawn to false teaching. Because they, they say something better that satisfies what they're going on. Yes, we have to say it in love and yes, we have, to, we have to be gracious as we say it and we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through us. But never ever should we be leading people astray by giving them false hope and telling them that they're somehow no as bad as... You're no as bad as what you think you are. I've always said, I've said it since we became reformed. You're no as bad as what you think you are. You're worse. But that's okay because Jesus is greater. And he leads us to what? All truth. Too much shallow talk when people's sins and weaknesses need way more than a trivial talk. I've had countless conversations about that. And then this is what happens. See, when you get the trivial talk, what, what happens when you're not really convicted? You know, see, when you're really convicted, you don't leave shouting, peace, peace. You leave going, oh, oh, oh. That's the noise. That's different noise. Phil Johnson asked me, what's the biggest thing that's happened in your church? I says, the noise. I says, the noise used to be, peace, peace. Well, that wasn't what I says, but you could say it. Peace, peace. As no, it's, oh, oh, that's a better sound. That's a better sound. But when it's peace, peace, you know when people leave, I feel, I used to be, be meetings in novice, I would be chanting, folk, they'd leave going, I feel terrific. Yeah. Peace, peace. You know that you've just gave them slightly. Thanks for the slightly healing. The Holy Spirit is therefore way more than a comforter. He's a convictor, he's an advocate. He comes alongside and challenges our flesh and, and brings peace to your soul. Okay, time's gone and I've no made it. I need to go to part seven next week. I need to go and finish the last verses. Why scrimp and rush in such deep, wonderful verses, eh? Let me close by reading them at least then, eh? Verse 28, 29, you have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. And from my Father is and, and for my Father is greater than I. And I and now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Yes, the disciples do love him. But at this moment, their love is carnal. It's needy. It's without real understanding. Because why? They're not fully the Holy Spirit. And Jesus here is reiterating as he has throughout the verses, real love for God, in fact, real love for anyone is to a degree limited when you're carnal. You just need to look how the world loves today. You just need to look how the world's redefining love today. You just need to see how the woke and how uh, everything's been rewritten to justify and suit the world's idea of love. And Jesus is saying here, you will never know real love 
You know, there's a motherly love that can be a nurturing love, but even then can be warped to death. But there's real love and understanding of love and understanding of real nurture. And we could all say, you know what, if I could start again, I would love, I would have loved differently. Would we not? But you can't start again, so. That's why, that's when we need the comfort. <laughs> when we can't start again. But we're limited, didn't we, in our carnal mind. You need only look at how the world re redefining love and in the last year it's a whole other level, isn't it? But love is truly not about denying herself, it's about promoting herself. It's about real love is you having, you being who you want to be. It's not about denying yourself or your selfish ambition. And at the time the disciples couldn't see beyond their own loss. Couldn't he see beyond their own loss? Couldn't he see the, the bigger picture? Couldn't he see the bigger gain of Christ dying on the cross? Couldn't he see that? Because they were too consumed with their own pain and their own loss. And through the Holy Spirit, don't you think that it takes you away from that selfish, inward looking all about me? Therefore, we can deny ourselves and our selfish ambition because we're no doing it as unto us, but unto Christ. I can expand on that forever, but time is gone. 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he is nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and the Father gave me commandment. So I do. And then he says, Arise and let's go. Jesus then tells that his death. The ruler of the world is coming. He doesn't say death though because I think that would have been too harsh for the disciples. They're already freaking out. But Jesus is saying, the devil's got nothing on me. Nothing. There's no bit of sin in me. There's no any unrighteousness in me. There's no any him in me. And all I'm going to do is lay down my life. But he's not taking my life. I lay it down. And he concludes saying, I'm here to do the will of the Father. And in my dying is me fulfilling the will of the Father. Jesus simply then stands in the upper room. See it? He's just sticks. And he's going to teach them a bit more as he goes. And he just stands in the upper room and says, let's go. And he walks down the stairs out of the room towards his arrest. Why can he do that? Because he's God. Why will we in turn be able to do that? Because he's in us. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Let's stand as we close. Thank you for joining us for our podcast here at Hope United Church. If you'd like to get in touch or for any more information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk.